For years, I believed that the Christian life was about striving to be more like Jesus. I was wrong. Not that being more like Jesus is wrong. Of course, God desires us to mature, but Christ-likeness doesn't happen by striving for it. I found that it happens naturally when you accept one single truth. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, author of the book Shut Up Devil, creator of the Shut Up Devil app. I'm all about shutting down the lies and struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life, and I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience. I'd love for you to join us live sometime on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. And by the way, don't forget, wherever you are watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. Last year, I was invited by my high school youth group to speak to their youth lock-in. And a whole lot of life had happened since the last time that I was on that platform. I think it was 18 years earlier. Back then, I was home from my first summer in college. No longer a kid, not really an adult, somewhere in between that, you know, in that undefinable in-between. I guess that they saw something in me, though. By the end of the summer, the leadership invited me to speak. I don't remember anybody else my age having that opportunity. I guess I had them fooled. By 19, I had mastered the art of wearing a mask. It was a survival technique that I developed to get through school. A facade of confidence guarded an internal garden of insecurity and shame, a garden from which I often picked fruit when nobody was looking, and ate its fruit. They were unaware that it was that insecurity and shame, that garden of things that prompted my leap toward faith just a few years earlier. My hope was that it could uproot the wrongness that I had felt for as long as I can remember. Nothing else had worked. I figured Jesus could do it, and he did, just very differently than I thought at first, but that's getting ahead of myself. Like I said, a lot had happened since then. I became established in ministry, spoke in churches across the country, three books under my belt, a slew of media appearances. But I was still insecure if I could craft a message that relates to a TikTok generation with a few second attention span. After weeks of prayer and reflection, I realized what I needed to say. It wouldn't be a light message. I knew I was taking a risk with a message like this to a teenage audience, but I had to tell them that for many years, I had misunderstood the goal of the Christian life. As I got up to speak, I began with the story of how I ended up at the church at 16 years old. I shared how I felt after my first visit. I told them how I fell in love with Jesus when I heard how much he loved me and that it was the first time in my life where I really had hope that something could be different for me. And I explained how somewhere along the line, I went down the slippery slope of religion. I made the faith about proving myself to God, how much better I could be, how much less I could sin. And I confessed to them that I became so performance-focused that I disregarded the message of God's love 
a spiritual baby food that Christians need to get beyond. And that's no exaggeration. I'm embarrassed to say that in college, I used to complain when I heard that the weekend message would be about God's love. I thought people would benefit more from learning about spiritual disciplines and being led into spiritual experiences. In hindsight, I suppose it's because I believed I would benefit more from them. Isn't that how it is? We think everybody else needs what we need. Well, it took me a decade of hard lessons learned to realize that's not what I needed, though. I told the kids that despite everything I did and achieved, I still felt lacking. I still felt like I was disappointing to God, still wrong, still shameful, not much different than when I stood in that same room as a teenager some 18 years before. And I think they were surprised to hear this. Many of their parents said, watch my path to ministry. I was one of their success stories, I guess. Some of the teens knew that. But I didn't want my put-together persona to fool them. Because it can sometimes. You know, people sometimes see me and they think that I've had this wonderful life of no issues. So I let them in on some things that they didn't know. Like the years of tears that I shed on my pillow at night sometimes from the God can't use you accusations that bounce through my head, like the rejection triggers that I wrestled down more often than I cared to admit, like how the reality of past regrets and present imperfections once had me this close to abandoning my call. But I stand here a changed man, I told them. All of the frustration that came from years of trying to improve myself drove me to the only thing that matters. Do you want to know what it is? You want to know what I told them? I said the Christian life is not about getting better. The Christian life is about being loved. And speaking of better, I know that to make such a claim, I better have Bible to back it up. So let me take you to a passage that's known as Paul's Prayer for Spiritual Growth. He wrote it from prison to the church at Ephesus. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 18. Paul says, May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. Verse 19, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So much for the message of God's love being something to grow out of. According to Paul, it's both the thing to grow into and the thing we grow from. It's the source of all strength, wholeness, and power. As I told the youth group, I found it to be the thread of my worth, the ground of my growth. I went into some of what love does that more discipline, more devotion, more willpower can't accomplish. But a single message can only go so deep these days, especially one to a teenage audience. My opportunity for death came a few months later over a long dinner. Former co-worker was in town. He was a friend, really. 
We worked together closely in ministry for about five years, but that was a decade before he texted me asking me if we could meet up for dinner. There's so much to catch up on. Since then, I launched my own ministry. I moved seven hours away, among many other things. So we met at a bar and grill. And this time, I didn't throw a single stink eye at those enjoying happy hour drinks. That was definitely different than a decade earlier. And I don't remember how we got on the subject. Maybe it had something to do with a couple at the table next to us, or maybe because we were across the street from a college campus. But somehow our conversation turned to God's love and grace. And somehow, early in the conversation, I told him that I no longer try to change people. And he was surprised to hear this, especially from a ministry leader. He thought that's the whole point of ministry. If you don't instruct people how to live better, then what do you do? I said, you tell them God loves you. He waited for more. I reminded him of the Apostle Paul's assurance that the kindness of God leads people to repentance. Of course, he knew that scripture. But he thought we needed to warn people about sin and teach people what God expects. So I got a little more theological. I explained what Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit. I've got an entire message about this. It's titled, The Real Role of the Holy Spirit. It's on my webcast or my podcast. Look it up. The gist of it is that the Holy Spirit convicts those in the world to change their mind about God, not to stop their every sin. Go look it up in your own time on John 16. He says, the Spirit will convict the world of its sin, singular. And then he defines the sin as unbelief. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit is his representative. So as his representative, the Spirit does what Jesus did. He does it like Jesus did it, which is through love. So my opinion, if the Holy Spirit uses that approach, shouldn't we? And it's really not any different for believers. Jesus called the Holy Spirit our advocate. The Greek word for advocate means legal counsel. It's like a defense attorney. Paraclete, parakletos is the Greek word. Like a defense attorney, it's the Spirit's role in a believer's life to remind us, not condemn us, to remind us of God's grace. To remind us that God is good and we are good with God because of Jesus. Now, I'll clarify here, like I did to my friend at dinner. Of course, Christians change and grow and mature. And yes, God desires for our lives to become more Christ-like, and we should want that too. I just find that all happens naturally when people know that they are loved. Now, when I said that to my friend, I knew that I had backed myself into a corner. How do I support that statement? I could cite more Bible verses. I could even offer science about how a sense of love reduces the stress hormone that leads to failure or how studies find that love promotes good health and healing. Google it. It's all true. But it's theory, I guess. And in the end, I knew that nothing convinces like testimony. 
so I had to get personal. I asked him to recall what I pursued when we worked together, spiritually at least. And he knew right away, didn't hesitate. He said, spiritual experience. I've told you that before, right? In those days, I chased all the sensational stuff. I believe there was nothing a good Holy Ghost meeting couldn't solve. And nothing wrong with those, by the way. I still enjoy them, just not for the same reasons. I pursued all of that back then with the hope that they would fix me, not like an addiction or a symptom, but, but me, like the core of me. But all the laying on of hands didn't impart a better version of me. Another prophetic word didn't change my insecurity about me. No deliverance prayer ever rid me of me. Nothing changed me, healed me, grew me, like resting in the realization that God loves me just as I am. He said, I've got a hundred questions. But first, he needed me to clarify just as I am. He feared that it might mean a license to sin. And I'll be honest, for a split second, I thought that again. I might have responded a little bit snarky when I said, nobody needs a license to sin. We sin just fine without one. But I get it. I used to say that line too. I believe that unconditional love might be misconstrued as unlimited sin. But it doesn't mean that. But it does allow for sin, and we better thank God that it does, because otherwise we're all in trouble. Because who can honestly claim to be free of sin? I mean, maybe you're free of the big stuff. Murder, hopefully. Adultery, theft. All those things. Yeah, those have more serious natural consequences than, say, a lie. But scripturally, sin is sin is sin. And none of us are free of it. As Paul said, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, and we do it every single day. So we better hope that love makes allowance for it. But besides, I don't know a Christian that truly wants a license to sin. I mean, do you? Do you want to fail even though you do it sometimes? I, I honestly have not met somebody, not a believer, that really wants that. But I have met many who need a license to be loved. A decade of receiving prayer requests has convinced me of that. Almost everyone knows that love is one of God's qualities. And apart from some angry sign waivers, most don't find it difficult to say God loves you. But few can say God loves me and really mean it, especially on their bad days. Without exception, this is the trait that I have observed in struggling people, and it doesn't matter where they fall on the spectrum between sex addiction and substance abuse or perfectionism. Most toxic behavior is either a means to ease the pain of feeling unloved or an effort to earn love. And I guess it takes one to know one. I never traveled the path to sex addiction or drugs or alcohol or that, fortunately, but perfectionism, absolutely. An obsession with achievement, you bet. These two were responses to shame, ways to earn and feel loved. And I think most people get that. 
my friend did. After all, the pursuit of love might be the most universal human thing. But he wanted to get back to the change that I had experienced. How does God's love help you please God, he said. And I decided not to bait the question, not to debate the question, because it took me a good part of a decade to grasp that in Christ we are as pleasing to God as we can get. Besides, I knew what he meant. He wanted me to show the receipts of this effortless growth, this natural growth that I claim to have experienced by just being loved. Well, we were two hours into our dinner at this point. And taking a bathroom break, he challenged, use this time to think of your best answer, Kyle. But I didn't need the time. In fact, I grew impatient waiting for him to return to the table because it was like fire shut up in my bones. So as soon as he sat back down, I said, God's love freed me to be me. Now, let me explain that. I'll explain it with a story. In elementary school, I continued to do something that hurt my mom deeply. I didn't mean to do it, but I couldn't tell her why I did it. I never invited her to class parties or parent days. Sometimes I downright lied to her about them so that she didn't show up. And naturally, she took that as rejection. She believed that I was ashamed of her, didn't want anybody to see her. What I wanted to tell her so badly back then, but I couldn't, is that it had nothing to do with her. I was ashamed of me. The last thing I wanted anyone to see was me at school sitting or playing alone without any friends. And I kept that garden behind my facade until my upper 20s. It was through a TV interview of all things that she finally heard the truth. You see, I was embarrassed of me, and that might be putting it lightly. In many ways, I hated myself. That's why I learned to wear a mask so well. During childhood, I came to believe that the most authentic parts of me were unlovable or even unacceptable. My quiet personality, my preference for science over PE class, my inability to pass a ball, even my love for country music. I know, I know. It seemed that everything about me made me an outcast. Probably because it all kept getting reinforced with name-calling and rejection. In my freshman year, some guys taped a newspaper clipping of me being featured as a scholar of the week above the locker room door, and I think they wrote some humiliating words over my forehead. Why? They didn't like me. Something was wrong with me. Yet again. I find it hard to put into words. But I think you'll get what I'm saying here. Even though I didn't choose how people treated me, I still felt ashamed of it. And that's the crazy thing about any level of trauma, and mine is child's play compared to what others have experienced, I know. But somehow, someone else's wrong is my wrong. You fear what people will think about you if they know it. I did. I kept it all a secret even to someone as close as my mom. But secrets make you sick. And sickness leads to medicine or coping mechanisms or escape mechanisms. Like I said, mine was perfectionism, achievement, even religion. I worked them as much as I could. Until I found that 
while they can hide things, they can't heal things. Ten years into the faith, I beg God to know what more do I have to do? And his answer was to accept his love. Simple as that, though, maybe not as overnight as that sounds. It was a journey of unlearning lies and accepting certain truths. But sure enough, just as the Apostle Paul assured, my strength, my wholeness grew naturally as I grew in my understanding of God's love. Then one day, there I was in front of a camera sharing some of my secrets on TV. Now, how does that work exactly? I don't know, but it seems that a good part of love's power is in what it does to fear. 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love expels all fear. Ultimately, John meant the fear that you are bad and that God is mad, which is shame. God's love allows you to embrace the qualities about yourself that you fear, maybe hate. It heals the parts of your story that you are afraid to admit, much less share. And it's not that it erases your memory or makes you forget that something exists. You just know that none of it defines you anymore. And growth is exponential from there because with no shame associated with those things that you once feared were wrong about you, God gets to use you as he made you for the reason he made you. If you want to talk about a crucified life, this is it. Accepting that you are loved unconditionally takes the focus off your instinct for self-preservation and people-pleasing at least enough to say like the prophet Isaiah did, here I am, Lord, send me, unclean lips and all. In fact, it makes it empowering to be sent and seen as you are because when you know that you are loved without exception, you somehow find that your imperfections are your unfair advantage, that nothing demonstrates God's power like them, that nothing relates to others like them. I found ministry in that. In the least, you'll find that there's no greater satisfaction than that, no greater purpose than that. Everything that God desires, his law of love, is both empowered and fulfilled by his love. He's given you everything to accomplish what he wants. You'll never love God more than when you accept his unconditional love for you. You'll never trust him more than when you accept his unconditional love for you. And you'll never love others more than when you accept his unconditional love for you. Let me explain that last one because that was the other big change in my life, how it helps to love others. Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. You've heard that before, right? Now, I know that what Jesus meant is that since you wouldn't hurt yourself, you shouldn't hurt others. Since you wouldn't curse yourself, you shouldn't curse others. You get the point. But it is common sense that you can't give something that you don't have. If you don't love yourself, you can't love others. In 1 John 4.19, right after he wrote that perfect love expels all fear, he says, 
We love each other because he loved us first. You recognize the progression in that? Only by knowing God's love for you can you show his love to others. Many people are surprised to learn that in the first decade of my faith, I had little compassion. No empathy. They think somebody as wounded as I was would naturally have empathy, but you know, there's truth to that phrase that hurting people hurt people. I didn't harm people, but I was hard on people through my words and advice and definitely in my thoughts. I had no grace for failure, no mercy for mistakes. Self-righteousness is all I had to give, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Accepting God's unconditional love changed this about me. I have friends who fear that maybe it changed it too much. They've misinterpreted my consideration for people as condoning everything. And that's not it at all. It's just that I have learned that there's no opportunity for ministry and condemnation and a list of things to fix fixes nothing. Mostly, though, the more I know God's love despite my imperfections and differences, then the more compassion I have for the imperfections and differences of others, whatever they might be. Telling you that's the secret to growing compassion. Take a good, long, hard look at you. And when you can appreciate what God loves you, in spite of, you'll be able to love others in spite of what you don't understand about their life, at least a whole lot better. You're not going to be perfect in it. I'm not perfect in it. But I'm a whole lot better than I was. There's so much more I could say on that topic alone. But if you want to talk about Christ's likeness, I mean, show me something that looks more like Jesus. Were you surprised to hear that that dinner meeting turned into four hours? I don't know if my friend agreed with all of my conclusions. You might not either, and that's okay. You know, we can disagree. It's okay. But because I've known the power of love in my life, that's what I want to give. That's what I'm anointed to give. I can only give what has worked for me. That's why so much of this ministry is based upon that foundation today. I can finish, or I finished my conversation with him the same way that I finished it with the teenagers at the lock-in. I say the same to you. Be you and be loved. That's all, but that's everything. Okay. Speaking of love, speaking of being loved and showing love, I have a teaching series to help you with it. It's called Lovable, How to Experience and Share the Healing Power of God's Love. As I said in the message, most people remain unchanged and unhealed solely because they haven't accepted God's unconditional love for them. This series helps you take the love that God has poured into your heart and get it from your heart into your head so that from your head it can go out and affect the rest of you, like how you talk, how you walk, how you think. And so that you're also able to have more peace with people too, to show it to others. 
This lovable series includes four audio messages experiencing the radical love of Jesus, exploring the depths of God's limitless love, how to love hard to love people, and compassion without compromise. You may get this mailed to you on four CDs, this set right here, or downloaded instantly on four MP3s at kylewinkler.org slash lovable. That's kylewinkler.org slash lovable. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil show. Remember, God is good and he is for you, and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org, on our podcast, and wherever you get your social media, And don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. See you next time.